The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Now, it's a good question to ask, why should we bother studying or thinking about the Reformation which happened so long ago, uh, uh, so many centuries ago in our era? Um, there's good reason for us to be slightly embarrassed about it. I, I've talked to, um, I talked to a lot of older people, actually, in, uh, in my line of work. Um, I actually spoke to someone who was 105 the other day, and quite frequently they say to me, oh, you know, growing up we had this this hostility between the denominations, between Protestants and Catholics. We weren't even allowed to be friends with Catholics, or we weren't allowed to be friends with Protestants. Uh, there was this division in Australian society. And uh, we might think in today's society that there's the sort, that sort of talking about that sort of division and a historical era in which that kind of division actually appeared it is in slightly bad taste. It's sort of triumphalistic, it's sectarian, uh, it reminds us of uh, an ugly side of religion uh, that, that prompted violent reactions and certainly over the, the centuries uh, between Protestants and Catholics there have been uh, atrocities committed, not just uh, theological disagreement. And so is it in bad taste to be talking about the Reformation in the 21st century? I don't think so, of course. Uh, I don't think so because I think the questions that the Reformation raise, raised back then are still live questions. They're universal human questions and they're questions that our culture is dealing with in different forms, perhaps in a different context, uh, but dealing with very much today. And these are the three human questions I think that the Reformation sought to address uh, all those years ago. The first one is the question of authority, uh, authority in human life. Uh, what what authorities do we have? What authority do we listen to? Uh, who, how do we relate to power in our society uh, and in questions of religious truth in particular, in questions of human existence? Where do I get my information about what a good human life looks like? Who tells me? Uh, what is the relationship of the individual to institutions? They're very much live questions in our society, and they were questions that the Reformation raised. Uh, what's the role of my conscience, and how do I have a conscience that's informed properly? Do I just look inside of me and I'll know, or do I inform myself in some way? Uh, do I have to just listen to the institutions? We are very suspicious of institutions, and that kind of uh, scepticism towards human institutions uh, certainly... Didn't necessarily begin in the Reformation, but certainly came to fruition, uh, came into into view, clear view in the Reformation. The second question is a related question, and that's the question of who am I? The question of identity, of human identity. Who, what, what is it to be me? Uh, what allegiances do I have to those around me? Uh, am I? Uh, a, a citizen of the world or am I a citizen of a particular group or nation? Am I a citizen of a tribe? Uh, I'm a member of a tribe or, or, or what? How do I relate to those kind of, uh, those kind of questions? But more than that too, uh, is, how do I relate who am I in the light of that which transcends me? I think the movement today of people saying that they're spiritual, not religious, is the suggestion that people still are very much aware that to be a human being is to ask the question of how do I relate 
who am I in the light of the great things that trend the great forces that transcend us whether that be the eternal spirit or the universe or whatever you might think that is um, how, that's a that's a very pertinent question for human beings and the last question perhaps a question we spend a lot of time avoiding and which was very much more visible to people in the Reformation era and before is the question of destiny where what is my future what is to become of both the earth that I live in and of me as an individual what how am I going to go when I die and um, where am I going to go um, we perhaps avoid the question of death but we certainly have a sense of uh, sometimes impending doom upon the earth we can certainly imagine the sort of apocalyptic scenarios that unfolded in the middle ages and in the ages of a war that preceded the reformation so we, we know about devastation we know about famine we know about economic collapse we know about environmental degradation and all the rest we know about those things and we wonder is that the how, is that the future for for the world and is that the future for human beings these are contemporary questions and i think universal and eternal questions for human beings raised in the reformation we live in the light of the way in which those questions were answered way back then and they're relevant questions for us today but to understand the reformation we also have to go back to see how those questions were answered to ask what the religious ecosystem of medieval Europe looked like. What was it like in that, in, in that world? What was the consciousness, religiously speaking, of the medieval Christian? And uh, I, this is just a sketch, and I, I take this from the great um, doyen of uh, Reformation history, um, a man called Professor Dermot McCulloch, who has uh, uh, published a number of books, including a great book called Reformation, Europe's House Divided, which I would say is the state-of-the-art work, only published uh, a decade ago or so, um, and an outstanding historian all up. And he says, if you were to look, take a snapshot of Europe in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, just before the Reformation in the 1500s, you would see these two things, these two prominent features. The first one of the religious consciousness. The first one is the idea of mass, the mass and its relationship to purgatory, the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, now, it had developed in Christian teaching, in the, in the teaching of the church, that there wasn't just a heaven and a hell, but that there was a place in between. And uh, this was important because if you were to be baptised, and you got baptised, you, you were free of original sin, and so therefore you weren't destined for hell, according to the teaching of the church. Um, but, of course, what happens to uh, Christians is you discover that they still do bad stuff. And that quite possibly... Very bad stuff, right? So being baptised doesn't save you from sin. So what's going to happen to that sin? Um, you can't just say to the bad Christian, or even the ordinary Christian who does sins, you, well, you've got a free pass into heaven on the basis of your baptism. So what are you going to do? Well, purgatory was the doctrine which said, you, once you die, you spend some years in a hell-like place, uh, burning off, having the sin purged out of you before you enter heaven. The way you could advance your, your, your way through, through to heaven was to have masses said for your soul uh, or was to participate in masses yourself uh, in this life. Uh, and it was also, of course, to uh, pay money in, uh, to the church when the church asked, especially if it had a good, big building program going on. might be a good uh, fundraising idea for the City Bible Forum, actually, to sell... Uh, no? No, it's not taking up. Um, anyway, great fundraising idea. And uh, Europe's economy 
was very much founded on this idea that uh, you had you had to say masses for those who were dead and get them through purgatory. Um, the great universities of Europe, Oxford and Cambridge in particular, were 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 originally set up as as kind of collections of buildings where people said masses for so- the souls of the dead, and you had priests. Uh, on their own, saying all day. They were founded by, you'd leave money in your will for masses to be said for your soul or for the soul of your mother or whatever it was. And you'd have a, a monk or a priest saying those, um, those, um, those masses for you. Now, we shouldn't be too cynical about this. There was a great spiritual intensity, of course, in the late Middle Ages. There were late lay movements um, of, uh, of deep spirituality. Um, you may have read Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ, a great spiritual classic. comes out at this time because there's a growing, a burgeoning interest amongst the middle classes, especially in, in spirituality and spiritual questions and in the life of prayer. So there's a lot of fervent religion, certainly, and a lot of it's built around this idea of purgatory how you get out of purgatory and get into heaven, even as a baptised Christian. So then the second uh, part, second component, if you like, feature or pillar of the medieval church was the idea of papal primacy. The idea that the Pope in Rome really was the, uh, was, was, was the, was the, was the sole authority for matters uh, of faith in, in, the, in the church in the West. And this had developed, right? This wasn't just an idea that fell off, uh, fell off the truck back in 200, 100 AD. This had developed and grown through the centuries such that uh, papal primacy had actually grow, become much, much larger and much more significant. And by the Middle Ages, uh, it was a very significant feature of the political landscape. The Crusades, uh, uh, Urban the, Pope Urban II preached a sermon uh, what a great sermon that must have been. And the Crusades were initiated by this powerful sermon, right? Uh, and it, it was a unifying force in Europe. So uh, uniting the different nations and, and tribes and, and prince, principalities, uh, the papacy had that kind of function. And so papal primacy. Now, we're going to find out that actually papal primacy was under a bit of threat at this time because the papacy had been divided at the time of Jan Hus. I put the Black Death there too because this was a part of the spiritual landscape. People are aware of, of death as never before at this time. Now, into this steps, into this atmosphere steps a very remarkable person, the man John Wycliffe. Uh, you've heard the name Wycliffe probably given to various Christian institutions. John Wycliffe is a remarkable figure in Oxford. Uh, he's an academic, a philosopher and a sort of part-time politician as well. And the thing about John Wycliffe is he's an independent spirit. And around about the 1370s, so the Great Plague, the plagues in the 1340s, 50s, in the 1360s and 70s, John Wycliffe starts speaking uh, strongly against the kind of corruption that's in the church. And actually turning, uh, as he sees the corruption growing in the church, turning to the scriptures, turning to the Bible and saying, the church ought to be subject to the Bible and not to the Pope. So quite a radical in that idea because um, the Bible really had been uh, sort of kept under lock and key by the church at this time and really you'd listen to the the way in which the church gave you uh, information about that. So for John Wycliffe, Bible reading and translation was the kind of thing he was going to promote. Um, He was involved in a translation of the English Bible, um, of course all handwritten at this stage, uh, we don't know that it was his actual work, but uh, certainly uh, under his supervision, translations of the Bible circulated. They were banned, but John of Gaunt, the king's uncle, 
had a copy, it turns out. So, you know, it's sort of one of those things where you ban it, but you're allowed to have it because you're in the royal family. So, um, certainly circulated very widely. Uh, he rejected uh, prayers for the dead, for instance, this whole economy of purgatory. He rejected it. He wanted the papacy abolished and monasticism abolished the idea that you'd have these mon- uh, monasteries, huge monasteries. He wanted to challenge clerical celibacy and, uh, and praying to saints. And why he did that was that these doctrines are not in Scripture. Now, he's, in one sense, he anticipates what goes on later for Luther and the other reformers because he, he, he makes an authority statement. He says, the authority for Christian faith is surely not this institution, which we can see is erred in many ways. That institution, the papacy and the church itself, it needs correction and reform. And we need to do that by turning to the scriptures. And we need to open the Bible and let it breathe by translating it into languages that people understand. Um, there's a movement that spreads around John Wycliffe's uh, name and identity, and they're called the Lollards. It's one of those names that's, um, that's uh, uh, a name of abuse at first, a bit like the Rats of Tobruk, uh, because a Lollard is a person who's sort of uh, their head lolls because they're stupid, right? The lollard, but they become—they're actually bright students at Oxford and other places, and uh, they're sort of an underground movement in England of believers who want to follow, who carry their little translations around um, and become quite significant. They're also co- called, as a term of abuse, Bible men, which says everything about what they were about. Now, John Wycliffe's uh, ideas become influential. Um, on the continent as uh, things, particularly as merchants travel, and they become influential in the Czech, what we now know as the Czech Republic, which was uh, then the state of Bohemia, which was really part of a political idea called the Holy Roman Empire, which really was Germany and Spain. And um, it, this country, which we now know as the Czech Republic, was sort of, it was ruled by Germans really, or there were German uh, cultural influence uh, very strong, but it had this Czech-speaking, um, Bohemian-speaking minority, or majority, and um, and so there's a tension growing there between these two ident- identities. And so we're introduced to this man called Jan Hus. I'm just conscious of the time. How long have I got? I've got to 20 past. Is that right? Including questions. Yeah, let's say you Okay. I've just introduced the main topic. Good. No. This is all. This is all fine. We're in time here. So Jan, Jan Hus, um, or um, John from Goose Town, because the name Hus means goose, and the name of the town he was born in was was Goose Town was Husenek, which means Goose Town. So people, of course, made great play of this guy's name being uh, John from. Goose. It pays not to have a silly name mostly in in, uh, in history. Um, he's an everyday uh, guy, and uh, really from a low-born sort of uh, background. He wants to um, advance in the world, and one way of advancing in the world is to join the church. Uh, and he, he says, actually, uh, in his later letters, that when he joined the church and studied theology and studied for the priesthood, he did so pretty much as a way of social advancement. There was no sort of spiritual reality to what he was doing. And so he went to the University of Prague. And the University of Prague, like the culture in general, uh, was actually dominated, even though it was in the Bohemian land, uh, it was dominated by German uh, influence. And so, actually, the German faculty had votes 
um, and they had three votes to the, uh, the, the Czech-speaking uh, faculty's one vote. So everything that was done was, of course, done according, uh, according to what the Germans wanted. A great tension between these two things going on in that university. So um, he's actually... It's, I, I found in, in researching for this that people's birth dates change depending on the sources. So I've got here born 1378, but someone else said 1372, which I think makes more sense, by the way. So he pursues the priesthood, but in 1370, sorry, in the 1398, he records that he had, uh, as he prepared for ordination, a kind of conversion experience, where he became much more serious and fervent about his faith. Now, in the Czech lands, they were a little bit uh, a, a kind of a gin the government. They always had this sort of tension between the sort of German dominance, and so they had pursued. Um, preaching and teaching in their own language and, and the idea that you would read the Bible for yourself was already there. But this really captured and captivated this man, this young man, Jan Hus. He's a bright fellow, got his BA in 1393 and his MA in 1396, was ordained in 1400 and then was made the rector of what a place called the Bethlehem Chapel. The Bethlehem Chapel still stands in Prague today. Well, when I say still stands... The communists loved Jan Hus as a kind of Czech nationalist and a bit of a rebel against, uh, you know, against the you know, kind of big system. And they kind of excavated the chapel and rebuilt it. So you can go there today. Uh, it was actually, it, it could seat uh, thousands of people or more, or at least they could be present. I don't know if they sat or not. And this was a pulpit in which, from which Jan Hus would preach in the local language, in Czech. It was designed to be a place where you would speak to the lay people. And as he preached, uh, he increasingly preached against clerical abuses and corruption in the church. He increasingly preached that only Christ was the authority in church matters, that the Pope only served him, that only the Christ could forgive sins, that you couldn't have the, the Pope or the church institutions forgive your sins. And again, you had to respond individually before God. You couldn't uh, rely on a priesthood or an institution to do that for you. Um, significant for uh, Jan Hus's teaching was that the Eucharist should be given to the uh, the people in both kinds. Now, if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic church, even today, the lay people get the bread only. Um, the, 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 the the blood, the the wine, is kept for the uh, the priesthood, uh, the priests, and uh, that's the case. I believe that's still the case in the Roman Catholic Church today. Um, for Jan Hus, this was a kind of uh, saying that the priesthood was somehow a special level above. And in fact, the, he, he argued very strongly. It, for us, it seems like a trivial matter, but this was actually crucial to the whole controversy that surrounded Jan Hus. And he became what's called an utraquist. That's a great, that's the word for the day that you can use at dinner parties to impress people. An utraquist is a person who wants to have both the wine and the bread in communion, an utraquist. And so his movement became known uh, as utraquism, uh, utraquist. So it's symbolic of saying the church institution should really serve Christ and the people rather than kind of be held as a special thing. Uh, he also supervised the translation of um, the scriptures into Czech and, um, and, and, and taught that it was actually the preaching of the word of God that brings about change, um, that actually people needed to hear with their ears and understand what they were preaching in order to have this individual response to Jesus Christ. Now, this didn't go unnoticed, um, and in fact, I've, I've, mis I've put here classic uh, typo. I put the trail of Jan Hus, which is not wrong, but I really meant the trial of Jan Hus. Um, uh, and it comes out of these uh, Czech-German tensions, of course, because people want to clamp down on what they see as up uppity, 
uppity uh, small nations, small groups. And uh, certainly he comes to notice and he's seen as a bit of a rebel. But you also have to note that uh, there was this thing called the Great Schism that had occurred in 1378, the Western Schism, which actually meant that there were two popes from 1378 onwards. There was a papacy in Avignon in France and there was a papacy in Rome. Uh, But then for good measure, because people thought this was a silly idea and we needed to unite the papacy, um, someone elected a third pope. So from about 1407 on, there was actually there were actually three popes. From 1409, there were three popes, and there'd been successive there'd been successions from those popes. So it was confusing, and um, the, the the authority, the papacy, obviously was under huge question at this time. And you had the different popes wanting to flex their papal muscles and say, "No, I am in charge here. This is where I am in charge." And so you get you get Jan Hus saying what he's saying, and he's going to be clamped down on. One response to this division in the papacy was to set up a council called the Council of Constance. Um, People said, look, the papacy isn't working, let's have a series of councils, and the Council of Constance will be the first one. The result of the Council of Constance was, in fact, that the three popes were abolished, and they elected now a fourth one called Martin V, and the, the, the schism was ended, so it was successful. But one of the things that this council did was in fact clamped down on Jan Hus. And that came because uh, through a series of events, he was uh, excommunicated, in fact, twice. I don't think he was ever reinstated. He was just excommunicated twice. I don't know what what good it does to excommunicate the person the second time, but he was. Um, uh, And uh, increasingly, he became this sort of rebellious figure uh, and he actually left Prague for, for, for his safety and went and became a kind of travelling pastor in the country, a pastor and preacher, because he wanted to take the message uh, that he taught to the, pre- to the people. He also wrote a great book in this, in this, in this, era, in this era, uh, in 1413, on the church, in which he outlined some of the things I've been talking about here, that really the church's head, the authority in the church, is Christ through the scriptures and not the Pope. Uh, radical stuff. Now, in 1415, he was called by the Holy Roman Emperor to the Council of Constance. Come, you need to be under trial. He didn't want to go, and you can understand why he wouldn't want to go. Uh, But in the end, the Pope said, I'll give you safe passage. Uh, Now, there was confusion as the documents... There wasn't email in those days, it may surprise you to learn. Uh, There was confusion as the documents flew back and forth. And in the end, uh, Jan Hus left for the council before the documents had actually been com- completed and he'd signed them. And what the Pope actually guaranteed was only safe passage to the council, but he didn't guarantee him safe passage from the council. That was a trick, and it proved fatal to Jan Hus. Jan Hus turned up at the council and was um, surprised to learn that he had signed up for uh, a what was, in, in, in it, all in, for all intents and purposes, a public interrogation, uh, he was not allowed to address the council. He was only allowed to answer questions. So he was he was addressed with the sort of questions, do you teach this or do you recant? recant? And in the end, he couldn't recant all of his teachings at all. He had to see, he stood by uh, the teachings that he uh, pursued. You can see some of the things he said here on the back. The only law that a Christian should listen to and read is the law of God's commandments. It's not right to comply with, implement or observe any other law. That's provocative stuff. And last... Lastly, indeed, no one does more injury in the church than he who acts perversely and yet has the name and order of sanctity, the kind of thing for which he was then condemned. And in 1415, um, he was uh, burnt as a heretic by uh, the Council of Constance um, doing its dirty work on Jan Hus. 
But his legacy didn't finish there because a movement had grown up around him and called, in fact, which took its name uh, in, in Czech history as the Hussite Church. There is still a Hussite Church in the Czech Republic today. And um, the Hussite Church, while it's not a Protestant church, it was a sort of separate church from the Church of Rome. Um, in fact, there was a, a crusade called against the Hussites not long after this. Um, but to everyone's surprise, militarily, the Hussites were able to defeat the crusading army that came to kind of clamp down on them in the Bohemian lands in the 1420s, I think it was. And so um, they survived as an independent church. Um, In fact, they uh, undertook the first famous of the two famous historical defenestrations of Prague. Now, a defenestration is where you chuck people out the window, right? And so what happened was... Uh, the, the Hussites, in fact, uh, took some of their, the people who came to attack them and uh, chucked them out the window. Uh, that's really it. But that happened again in the 17th century. So um, two de- defenestrations of, of, uh, of Prague. Um, so his legacy was this, this, this Hussite movement, which exists even to this day, although it doesn't have a lot of uh, oomph to it. Uh, they survived this crusade. It was an inde- but it was already the case that in Europe there was a sort of independent nationalist religious movement that had broken away slightly from the church. Now, secondly, so that's really his first legacy. Secondly, uh, it's, it's worth saying that for Martin Luther, a hundred years later, it was absolutely crucial that he had Jan Hus as a predecessor. He could see what, first of all, he could see the consequences of defying the authority of the church, but he also learnt a heap from this man, Jan Hus. He learnt all about authority in the church from him. In fact, in 1519, Luther said, uh, which means, yes, I am a Hussite. In fact, he said, we all should be Hussites. Uh, this is radical stuff. Luther, diff- very differently though, managed to escape his interrogation and survive and go on to uh, lead the, the Lutheran movement as it developed. Um, so where Jan Hus's influence is really significant is in this sense that you, you really had to return to the sources of the Christian faith to really understand, to, re- to really find authoritative teaching, to really find what, what Christianity was about. And that the church should submit to its own sources and self-correct. And I think this is one of the, the, the really great pieces of genius that you get from Wycliffe and Hus and later from Luther, is that the church as an institution should be this kind of self-correcting, humble institution, aware of its own sins, ready to confess its own sins, and listen very carefully to the word of God to which it responds. Um, I think that's a message for churches even today, whatever church that might be, because we're aware of our institutional imperfections. We're aware of them. But if we understand what the nature of the Christian church is, the nature of the Christian gospel is, we can do as Jan Hus and Martin Luther suggested and listen humbly to that powerful word of God which makes the church what it is, which communicates Christ to us and, and reform accordingly. Listen and, uh, and uh, confess and change, repent and be that kind of church which really is... Uh, the essence of the Christian message. And so um, that's, that's Jan Hus for us. He's 100 years before the Reformation, so going back now, 600 years. And next week we're going to fall, uh, come forward, uh, move over to Switzerland, and meet another fascinating character, uh, another maverick, really, um, the reformer who was also a musician, 
and the reformer who died in battle, the man from Zurich, um, Ulrich Zwingli. So I'll start here. To what extent, the first question, to what extent was this was Hus aware of the trial he was heading into? The purpose, the procedure, and why was he being called to the council? I think he was uh, tragically very aware of, of what he was being called to do, um, and he was very reluctant to go. Um, he was aware of the consequences of heresy, um, but there was a sense in which this guarantee, there was a communica- miscommunication, this guarantee of safe passage um, seems to have eventually coaxed him in and then, uh, and so there was an element of a, of, of a trap in terms of uh, he may have been condemned as a heretic but if, he, if you've got safe passage guaranteed for you by the emperor you would assume that means you can safely leave um, but not in this case so uh, not a happy episode um, did his ideas have much effect on the Catholic Church um, well only in the sense that uh, so none of his ideas are actually taken up by the Catholic Church over the next two, three, four hundred years um, and so even to today, um, communion is taken in one kind in the Roman Catholic Church, etc. Uh, the key idea of his that really the scriptures should be read in the local language and uh, interpreted and uh, that, that really it's your, the Christian faith is between a person and God in Christ, not mediated through an institution. That's not an idea that's ever really, that's an idea that's explicitly repudiated in Roman Catholicism. Um, and so uh, I would say much effect only in the negative sense that they were repudiated uh, as ideas um, uh, e- even to this day. Vatican II has led to a lessening up, uh, loosening up of this and use of the vernacular language, um, I'm happy to say, and uh, certainly a much greater desire to read the Bible, um, which again I'm very happy to see, um, and, but I, I don't think that's really to do with Jan Hus um, explicitly. What about Wycliffe? Did he draw inspiration from any earlier reformers well Wycliffe is actually kind of uh, there aren't any earlier reformers uh, in a sense Um, uh, he's really a bit of a maverick on his own so um, where he draws his inspiration from in terms of this defiance of uh, church authority I'm not quite sure whether it seems in reading about him nobody says oh he's just copying someone from a hundred years before certainly there is a history of controversies and debates in, in, the, in the Western Church, uh, that's certainly the case. Um, but really, his inspiration is from, he would, he would claim, certainly from his reading of fresh scripture and saying, what I'm seeing around me isn't there. So um, he's really, so, he's called the sort of the, the morning star of the Reformation because he's the sort of first one in the chain. Were reformers, in essence, nationalists at that time? Well, yes, it's, it, that's a great question because nationalism is part of the story. Part of the story of the Reformation is the independence of local movements, just as it was with the Renaissance, with the introduction of local languages and saying, yes, you know, Italian's okay to, to write literature in and you can have Geoffrey Chaucer writing English and you can actually do poetry in English. I mean, before that, you'd think English? Poetry? Really? I mean, what an ugly language it is. You, don't, you wouldn't do that, uh, whereas uh, that's a sort of increasing sense of, of national in independence uh, is coming out. And uh, you've got, remember, there's two international forces. There's the Holy Roman Empire, 
which is a sort of loose confederation of, uh, of the nations of, the, of Middle Europe. And then you've got the Roman Catholic Church, and there's always tensions between the local and the international. It's very much similar to the EU and Britain at the moment. You know, it, it, it never stops. It's the same debate, really. Um, and so the emergence of those local, of local independent languages, uh, when Luther writes the Bible in German, that's extremely influential for the German language. When Czech um, becomes the language of faith, that uh, has a, a, a lasting impact um, in Jan Hus's writings have a lasting impact not just on the Czech mentality but on um, on, on the Czech language itself um, which has a lot of Z's in it uh, would the Reformation have occurred without the Renaissance and the answer is um, uh, that's, a, that's one of those historical what ifs and I think the answer is no it wouldn't have uh, historically speaking I think of course there was a spiritual movement but historically speaking, the Renaissance brought a return, a couple of things, like the return to the sources. Ad fontes was a great cry. In other words, don't have things mediated to you through translations in Latin, because they're often wrong. Go back to the original and learn Greek and Hebrew and the other languages. And so all of a sudden, you've got people saying, we should do that with the Bible. We should have Greek and Hebrew. And people now start to learn those languages and read the Bible afresh and see that those sources have some authority, uh, you know, have an authority that the institution hasn't observed over history. So the Renaissance is extremely important for that. And as I say, the development of local sort of independent cultures, which says we're not just going to take, we're not just going to take it lying down from head office. Um, now how did the church, inverted commas, prevent the layman from knowing what was in the Bible? Well, no printing, remember. So you didn't have printing... So you didn't have very many copies. I mean, a book is massively expensive. A book is sort of like a Mercedes in those days. Um, a massively expensive item. People may only may, may never have owned a book. And, of course, widespread illiteracy. Um, they taught the Bible through images, through um, what you see on the great cathedrals of Europe, those, that sort of thing. Uh, people did listen to sermons. People did... Um, people did hear Bible stories uh, read and what, what have you. I w- wouldn't say they were completely ignorant, uh, but it was, or, or they went to mystery plays where Bible scenes were enacted, but often in a kind of satirical way. So their knowledge of the Bible wasn't great, um, and uh, that people it, it was dangerous. Now, it wasn't just the church, by the way. It was kings didn't like the idea of the Bible being read because there are passages in the Old Testament where kings who are bad got overthrown. And uh, if you're a king, King Henry VIII, and someone reads that, you're very afraid that someone's going to revolt. And uh, that happened, of course, in the Middle Ages. Several times you had various revolts, and you didn't want that to be prompted by what people read in the Bible. To what extent was... Oh, I've read that one already. Uh, some more? You sort of covered that one already. Okay. The princes influenced by not wanting to be answerable to Rome and hence support a more nationalist movement. Yes, that's certainly true, both in the Czech in Czech times, but also in um, sorry in Hus's time, but also in the period of um, the Reformation in uh, in Germany. Um, uh, have the Moravian uh, brethren are they an embodiment of the Hussite Church? Now, the Hussite movement actually split into two, and there were the sort of people who looked more like they were sort of just Roman Catholic without the Pope. There was another movement called the Taborites. And they were this sort of millenarian sect of really weird, a really weird type um, fanatical group. They didn't last very long, uh, but but that sort of that sort of movement was there, or it was a history of it in the, the Czech lands. And the Moravian Brethren occur in the 
you know, much, much later, and uh, I'm not sure of there being any direct um, continuity between those two. So I, I'll probably leave that question uh, unanswered, um, other than what I've just said. Should there be a repentance by denominations for wrestling against flesh and blood, um, which may assist uh, Muslim relations? Now, I'm not sure what the question actually means. I, I do think um, I, I do think that uh, denominations, so Christian churches, should be repentant churches. This is one of the things that Luther said. Um, the church must always be reforming because the church, as a human institution, is always going to be imperfect. So one of the great um, features of our time is, of, of course, the scandals over child abuse and what, well, child sexual abuse in churches. Um, I'd, I think churches should be willing and ready and open to, to, um, to repent over those issues and to show that we've changed. There should be no question of hiding anything. But also, at one level, the, the mistake we made was being surprised that such evil was in our midst because... The church is an imperfect institution. Um, it's the mistake we make when we think, oh, it's a holy institution, He's a, we're all good Christians here, and therefore we don't need the usual protections, the usual sort of observation of one another um, you know, uh, that we would have in ordinary society. We, we should be aware that, that, that Christians and institutions are still imperfect and still sin and need to change. That's not really an answer to the, to the question, but I'm not sure that I understood it, so uh, maybe that person could talk to me later. Uh, do we know... When a Roman Catholic Mass first had bread only and no wine, and no, no, uh, uh, no, no wine except for priests, um, uh, my answer to that is it is known, <laughs> but I don't know it. Um, uh, secondly, so I'm sure it could be traced. Um, uh, and the reason is not quite clear. Um, was it that the, the, the wine is somehow holier? Uh, certainly the logic that in flesh you have blood uh, was that if you got the bread, you got blood anyway. You, you know, surely there's blood in bread. So um, that was that. And, and was it a response to um, people dropping or spilling the, um, the wine? Um, certainly people were very afraid at the time that uh, the reason that they used melt-in-the-mouth wafers is that um, people were taking pieces of bread under their tongues and giving it to their sick animals, um, and sort of using it um, as, as a kind of a holy object in an inappropriate way. So... So that was kind of, there was a suspicion that the laity would uh, misbehave, so maybe that was part of it as well. Secondly, did Orthodox, uh, before or after 1054 split, have bread and wine for lay members? Um, and again, I'm not sure what the Orthodox practice is um, on bread and wine. Does anyone know? Do the, do the Orthodox give both bread and wine? Okay, there you go. Does anyone know? Anyone been to an Orthodox Mass? And So I, I don't know, to talk to so there you go. Um, some of the finest minds of the country gathered here. Uh, do, do you see any parallels between the gay marriage referendum in Ireland and the Reformation? No. No. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I, I mean, I, it's a moment in Ireland, I suppose cultural moment in Ireland, when the, the church as an institution has lost an enormous amount of authority because of uh, perception that there was corruption and a perception that lay people weren't taken seriously. So, yeah, there's a parallel there. Um, but I don't think there's a sort of spiritual movement. Uh, it's a kind of secularising movement. Um, the difference was that the reformers, certainly Jan Hus saw himself as a loyal Catholic, and Martin Luther saw himself as a loyal Catholic. He didn't want to be kicked out. And so um, that's, that's, where, that, that's where I would like to see parallels, I suppose. Is, is, there a, is there a movement from within the Catholic Church itself 
people calling for change, and perhaps there is. Um, uh, interesting question to consider further. Sorry, this question was written before my conclusion. Do I think, given the tendency of institutions to calcify, that Christian church needs constant reformation and that this will be resisted? Um, this will be constant tension. Yes, the Christian church needs constant reformation or constant checking against its sources. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, some people think reformation of the Christian church means updating. Um, the, the Christian church should never be trendy. Um, that it is daggy is a great thing. And also, when we change, we can, do, we, we, we change, we can change slowly. We don't have to keep abreast of the times. Um, that's not what we need to reform in line with. What we need to do is to return to our sources. Um, in the 1930s, Karl Barth, uh, in writing or preparing and uh, issuing the Barman Declaration with others uh, in the face of uh, Christians, uh, many Christians caving into Hitler, said, it's not the church's job to see in history, to ride the waves of history, to see, oh, Adolf Hitler is God man, God's man for our hour. Uh, the church has one task, and that is to be faithful to Jesus Christ its Lord. Now, that's what we need to do, and uh, that might take us, it might take us a long time to, to discuss what that means for our particular time. We, we don't have to be... That's really important, I think, because we feel the tension of being out of step with our culture. I say, if we're out of step with our culture, more the better. I think that's, uh, that's a great thing. Uh, that, that, that helps us to see more clearly what we're on about. Uh, by the way, being in step with one's culture, what that means is a more complicated question than, uh, than I think sometimes we we uh, give credit to, so that's a question that needs discussing further. Should there be, lastly, oh, no, I've said that one too. I think I've answered the questions. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.